0: Hello and shalom from Jerusalem. Uh, what follows is not a regular episode of the Quran Podcast, um, but is a recording of the MST Live, a deeper look at Magid Studies in Tanakh series, uh, the live streamed event on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, the evening was graciously hosted by Sarah Ridner. Uh, she was joined by Rabbi Benny Lau, the author of Jeremiah, the Faith of a Prophet, and Isaiah, Prophet of Righteousness and Justice. Uh, by Professor Nahama Price, author of Tribal Blueprints, Twelve Brothers and the Destiny of Israel, and Professor Yal al author of Places in the Parasha, Biblical Geography and Its Meaning. Um, each of them gave uh, insight into their book, into their methodology, uh, and the importance of studying uh, their chosen uh, topics. Um, and you'll hear a, a nice discount Offered on all MST, mugged studies and tanach and mugged Tanach Companion Books twenty percent off at currentpub.com using promo code MST Live and that is available until february second, twenty twenty one. Please enjoy.
1: Welcome to Magid Studies in Tanakh Live, an opportunity to delve deeper into some of the remarkable books and ideas recently published by the Magid imprint of Koran Publishers. The Magid Studies in Tanakh series and the Magid Tanakh Companion series explore the literary artistry and historical context of the Bible, using an innovative, interdisciplinary approach that combines traditional Jewish commentaries with contemporary scholarly techniques. Each one of these magid volumes presents exciting new ways to plumb the depth and relevance of the Bible, our most foundational sacred text. I'm delighted to host this evening because I'm such a personal fan of these books. They've brought meaning and insight into my own life as a religious Jew and a student of Tanakh. The authors we are going to hear from this evening are Professor Nechama Price, Professor Yoel El and Rabbi Benny Lau. Please remember that throughout the event, you're welcome to ask questions on either of our live stream platforms on Facebook or YouTube. We'll be paying attention to these questions and we'll hopefully have time to direct them to our speakers at the end. If you like what you hear tonight, you're invited to purchase these and other wonderful volumes on the Koran website right now at a special discounted price of 20% off. Our first speaker this evening is Professor Nahama Price. Professor Price is a senior lecturer in Bible and Judaic studies at Stern College for Women. And she's the director of Yeshiva, University, Yeshiva University's graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies. She works as a Halakha, a Jewish marital law advisor in a number of communities in the United States. Tribal Blueprints is a product of 20 years of teaching and research and presents a unique way of looking at the 12 sons of Jacob as blueprints or personality archetypes that repeat themselves throughout Jewish tradition by way of their descendants. I really enjoyed this book and find that Professor Price's insights have a way of staying with you long after you put it down. Professor Price, thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Professor Price. How are you? How are you? Hi. <laughs> Welcome. Um, we're so excited to hear from you. Uh, please tell us a bit about the book, and also answer the following questions for all of us. How does this book demonstrate your general approach to Tanakh study, and how is this message especially relevant to our current age?
2: Okay. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this prestigious panel. I am honored and overwhelmed to be presenting along with Rabbi Lau and Professor Elie I'd first like to discuss the goals and thesis of my book, and then I'm happy to answer your question. This book, Tribal Blueprints, is my first book. The goal of the book is to discover and analyze the personality traits and storyline of each tribe of Israel independently. I wanted to look at the stories about each of Yaakov's sons and create an understanding of their individual personalities, their strengths, weaknesses, and motives. When you look at each of their stories on their own, you really gain an understanding of who they are as people. Who are they trying to be? What is their bigger role within the family? It also allows us to understand each story more deeply. For example, instead of analyzing the actions of all the brothers in the sale of Yosef, we break up the story into the motives of each separate character. Why would Ruvain want to throw Yosef into the pit? This is analyzed in the Ruvain chapter to fit with the bigger picture of his story of the Dudaim and every time he appears in Sefer Breshit. Why does Yehuda suggest selling Yosef and how does this fit into all of his stories in Breshit? Especially the story in the next chapter about his family dying and his affair with his own daughter-in-law, as well as his bravery to exchange his own freedom for that of Binyamin. And of course, why does Chazal assume that it is Shimon and Levi who state that they want to kill Yosef? What is it about all of their stories in Breshi that leads to this assumption? However, the book goes one step further than just analyzing the stories of the sons of Yaakov in Breshit. You see, each tribe gets two chapters. First, there is a chapter on their story in Breshit to explore the various ways to read the stories of that specific son of Yaakov to discover who they really are. But then each tribe gets a second chapter dedicated to their descendants. The thesis of the book is that these same character traits of each son of Yaakov is then expressed by their descendants throughout Tanakh. Here's a few classic examples. Yehuda Mbreshi is strong, fearless, wise. He's the leader of the family, but he certainly has challenging times with women. The same personality is found in his descendants. For example, David HaMelech who bravely fights Goliath the giant as a young boy, leads the Jewish people in war against all of their enemies as their king, but at the same time, sins with Bathsheba. Or Shlomo HaMelech, who's blessed with tremendous wisdom and leadership, but whose downfall comes from his love of the daughter of Paro and his many wives. Or we have Yosef and Breshi, who is a great leader and saves the world from famine, but there appears to be flaws to his behavior as well. He does not always consider the results or repercussions of his actions, like when he chooses to tell his brothers about his dreams, or when he wears his special coat in front of them, or certainly his explicit desire for power and leadership. Therefore, there is no surprise that his descendants include great leaders, like that of Yehoshua and Devorah but also leaders who neglect to think about the consequences of their actions. Like Yiftach, a judge from the tribe of Yosef, who swore the first thing that comes out of his door after winning against the enemy, he will give as a korban laHashem. And when he returned after the battle, his daughter emerged. Yosef descendants also include leaders who get corrupted by their desire for powers, like Yeravam, who took ten tribes away from Malchut Beit David and moved the center of worship away from the Beit Hamikdash in fear that his people will return to the King of Yehuda and he will lose his power. The book also compares the leadership qualities of both Yosef and Yehuda characters in Brashi. Yosef is blessed with the Behor status, and Yehuda is chosen for malchut, kingship. Throughout our history, the two tribes constantly fight over leadership and power. The goal of my book is to reveal these patterns in every single tribe throughout Tanakh. However, tonight I was asked To answer the following question, how does your book demonstrate your general approach to Tanakh study and why is this approach important or relevant in our current age? I would like to answer this question in a few ways. First, I have a strong passion for understanding personalities of the Tanakh characters. I believe that we relate to them much more when we understand them. Delving into their personalities and trying to understand their motives and thought processes allows us to reflect on the stories of Tanakh to learn lessons that apply to our own lives. We often learn the concept, Masa Avot Siman Labanim, that the stories of our forefathers are a sign for future generations. I believe this applies to all Torah stories for every generation. We relive their stories over and over. We have similar struggles. Many of us experience sibling rivalries. Most people believe that their parents exhibit favoritism. Many of us experience jealousy, hatred, as well as love and longing. We have communication issues between spouses, fertility struggles. We can feel, understand, and closely relate to the stories of the Torah and, of course, learn from them. Second, I have a particular style in learning and teaching Tanakh where I analyze every story from the various perspectives offered by the ambiguity of the text. Every story has multiple readings. Every story can be understood in many different ways. If you think about it from the perspective of the Mepharshim, for every Rashi, there is a Ramban and a Radak and Ibn Ezra and a barbanel, and so many more. And they all have different takes on the exact same story. They can't all be historically accurate, since they often contradict. For every midrash, there is normally another statement by Chazal that has the opposite approach. Once you realize that there is no singular way to look at any Torah story, you begin to realize how little we know for certain. There are countless mysteries and ambiguities throughout the text of the Torah. I believe in God's ultimate wisdom, He could have written a Torah that didn't have these ambiguities and multiple readings, but he chose not to, simply because the Torah is not just a history book, but rather it is a code of moral lessons. Each story has multiple perspectives and different outcomes, adding new layers of meaning, which is why I believe that learning Tanakh is so wonderful and exciting, but also why there are so many lessons to learn depending on how you solve each mystery. My book utilizes this teaching style as it provides multiple perspectives to every single story, while at the same time, it never reveals my own true feelings about which view is my favorite, and that is because as you read the book, I invite the reader to engage the text and choose favorite interpretations. Which one speaks to you? Which one makes sense to you in the bigger context of all the stories? Which one inspires you? to be a better person. Since the goal of learning Tanakh is to learn these messages and morals that apply to our lives, I would like to point out three major lessons that I try to emphasize in the book and that I believe are vital for us in today's world to always remember. Sometimes when reading Sefer Breshi, we get the impression that only the perfect and the most righteous are chosen and those less than ideal are rejected. But the story of the Shvatim, the 12 tribes, with all their imperfections laid out so clearly in the text, we learn that God does not expect perfection to be chosen. The sons of Yaakov teach us what it means to be human, with human emotions, jealousy, hatred, humiliation, regret, fear, confusion, and so much more. But they also teach us how to move forward. The ones who are selected for leadership Also, sin, but they admit to their sins. They change. They grow. They learn from their mistakes. They do tshuva. We can see a process of growth within the stories of some of the children of Yaakov. The second message I wanted to express in the book is how amazing it is to realize that God matched up the personality of the tribes with its bigger goal for the future. If a tribe has leadership qualities, then it is deemed worthy for leadership throughout history. If a tribe has intelligence, then it may in the future be a tribe that produces military intelligence. However, when the sons of Yaakov themselves are trying to define their role within the family, they don't always realize how their personalities and actions affect the way those around them view their role. To give an example, one of the biggest tragedies I discuss in the book is the role of Reuven. He wanted so badly to lead, but lacks the qualities and personality to be a leader. He spends his life trying to be someone that he was never going to be able to be. In life, we need to base our choices of who we are meant to be based on who we are. What are our capabilities? If I'm not good at math, I can't be a math teacher or an accountant or an actuary. It really doesn't matter if I want to be one. If I can't speak in front of a crowd, I can't be a speaker. So too, the roles that are given out to each of the tribes must must match their abilities and personalities. But my favorite lesson from the book is the closing message found on the very last page. After analyzing all of the 12 tribes, it is incredibly clear that B'nai Yisrael is not made up of just one type of person. B'nai Yisrael is made up of 12 different personalities, 12 people who have totally different strengths and weaknesses. Yes, some have leadership qualities and are chosen to lead. Others are given the role of being the followers, the am, the nation. But in life, you need both. You can't have all leaders without any followers. Therefore, all 12 sons of Yaakov are chosen and all are needed to form Am Yisrael, some to lead and some to follow. There is not one way to be a servant of God. As I write in my conclusion as a quote, Variety is necessary and provides life with its color, balance, and beauty. Each tribe is essential to create the Jewish nation, end quote. This is a strong message for each of us. There is not one chosen quality. There is not one chosen tribe. There is not one way to be chosen by God. When we look around at our neighbors, our friends, our communities, our families, we see so many different personalities, so many different types of people. But all of us together, with all of our differences, create this beautiful nation. It is our differences that truly make us into Klaal Yisrael. These are a number of ideas that are found in my book, Tribal Blueprints, and I hope that all of you will enjoy. And I thank you and I thank Cohen very much for inviting me to be on this panel.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Price. That was wonderful, and I think it really gives the viewer a taste of what makes your book so engaging and insightful, connecting us with our uh, biblical ancestors on every single level. Um, And uh, definitely highly recommend it, and uh, once again, available on the Corin website at the moment for a wonderful discounted price. Uh, Now I am honored to introduce our next speaker, Professor Yoel Elitzur. Professor Elitzur, hello, welcome, hello. <laughs> Professor Elitzur is going to speak to us tonight about his extraordinary book, Places in the Parsha, Biblical Geography and Its Meaning. Professor Elitzur is a leading expert in the fields of biblical and historical geography and Hebrew and Semitic languages. He is a member of the Academy of the Hebrew Language and its representative on the National Naming Committee of the Israeli government. He has headed several Land of Israel studies departments at colleges in Israel. And it mentions on the profile on his book cover that he leads tours throughout Israel. In fact, he's actually discovered and developed many of the Bible-based routes that any of us have taken in the Land of Israel. Places in the Parsha is an English translation of the Hebrew book Makom Be'Parsha, which was built on a weekly radio program that Professor Elitsor hosted on the Israel Broadcasting Authority. Each chapter is a jewel, a fascinating account of an unusual or unknown dimension of biblical geography. What I especially love is how effortlessly Professor Elitsor connects the ancient physical landscape of the Bible with the world we live in today. Professor Elitzur, we're going to turn to you to please tell us more about this amazing book. Also, to answer the questions, we're going to ask all of the presenters this evening. How does this book demonstrate your general approach to Tanakh study? And how is this message especially relevant to our current age?
3: Thank you. Uh, slide one. I would like to beg your permission to tell a real story. For many years, I taught in Jerusalem in a religious semi-Haredi college, Michlala. I remember this uh, institution fondly. I got a lot there. I invented a course there that I called Eretz HaMikra, the land of the Bible, in which I received the students for half a day each week. The program was built alternately. One week in class, one week on a tour. Usually at a site or observation point not more than an hour's drive or a little more from Jerusalem. Up to Tel Shechem in the north and to Hebron in the south, Jericho, Jericho. Slide. you see the uh, mud-brick wall of Jericho. Uh, and the environment of the Jordan River in the east. Slide. West, please uh, share. The... Uh, um, area of the Jordan River in the east, and west to the ancient sites of Ashdod or Bnei Brak. At the same time, I also taught a course called Biblical Geography as part of my frontal courses. The founder and head of the Michlala slide, Rabbi Yehuda Kuperman, Zal, was not always happy with the research bibliography I gave the students to read. Nor was he always enthusiastic about the Arab villages in which I wandered with the students. Before the Intifada riot and the so-called peace process, it was certainly possible. But I had a free hand in both the teaching material and in financing the trips. Uh, and the tools. And now I come to the story. Once I stand in the first or second lesson of the biblical geography course and explain to the students why it is impossible to identify a certain biblical town in a certain place and why it is more correct to identify it elsewhere. And then suddenly one student points out Hagav lama And why is it important? What? Boom. What do I do now? At that moment, God gave me an idea for my head. And I answered her, listen, it is really not important, but it is very interesting. And by the end of the year, you will see that I was right. Of course, you understand that I do not really think so. But that may be exactly the secret of the matter. Teachers and the the students, and even the teachers of the teachers, and even the best of our classical commentators, consider the allotment chapters of uh, Seferi Yoshua something incomprehensible and uninteresting. And for the most part, they skip them, or almost skip them. Slide. In contrast, Hazal precisely considers these very chapters of Joshua to be the essence of the book, and furthermore, almost on the same level with the Torah. When I managed to turn these chapters and topics into something interesting, I did a great thing. And it's not just the geographical chapters. Almost every story in the Bible gets a completely different look when you understand its geographical background, certainly when you step on your own feet in the places of our ancestors. This week, we are going to read in the Haftarah about the war against the Canaanite army of Sisra at the foot of Har Mount Tabor, slide. Now note its location and the map, slide. <clears throat> we'll encounter the surprising victory and the song that Zebora and Barak sang by Yom HaHu on that day. In the chapter devoted to Parashat Beshalach in uh, my places in the parasha, I quoted original insights from my father, from your, Professor Yehudai the Zikruno Livracha, slide. <coughs> at whose Shabbat table I learned to know and to love the land of the Bible. But the main innovation in this chapter is that of a humble and forgotten researcher named Nehemiah Tzuri. Nehemiah Tzuri was a kibbutznik and archaeologist who for years studied mainly his area of residence the Jezreel Valley, the Beit Valley, and the Lower Galilee. Tzuri wrote his words briefly and without much rhetoric. I tried to turn them into a story. The main discovery of Tzuri was that the Kishon River that washed the Canaanite chariots was not the river known today as the Kishon River. Slide. You can see here the uh, main uh, stream in the Jazeel Valley that we today call it uh, Nahal Kishon. Uh, the, this, this river formerly called El Mukata, is the only one stream that connect, connects uh, Mount Tabor from one side and the uh, Mount Carmel from the other side, because we we meet the name Nahal Kishon twice in the Tanakh, once connection connected with Zisra and Har Tabor, and once connected with Elijah in Mount Carmel. So everybody looked for a stream that connects. These two places. And the, the only candidate is El Mukata, so we called it Nachal Kishon. However, Nechabia Tzuri noticed that Rabbi Historia Parchi, the author of Kaftova Ferach, 700 years ago, documented from the Arabs the name Kesun in the east and not in the west. Rabbi Historia Parchi mentions several times in Kaftoba Ferrah the Kesun stream, a stream that surrounds Mount Tabor on three sides, then deepens and empties into the Jordan River, halfway between the Sea of Galilee and bet This stream, now called Nachal Tavor, to be found, so it, uh, you can see uh, in the um, right of the map, you can see near Mount Tavor, you can see the Nahal Tavor, which is uh, in, indeed, uh, in fact, it. it is probably the original uh, Nahal Kishon. So we found other sources from different periods that confirm Historia Parchi attestation. This means that were that there were uh, actually two streams one uh, called Kishon one in the east between Mount Tabor and the Jordan and Ma- one in the west near uh, Mount Carmel uh, so hence perhaps we have a new meaning for the difficult expression nahal kedumim nahal Kishon slide You can see the far-fetched Perushim of Targum of uh, King James, and now we have a new simple and understandable interpret- interpretation: the Easter stream, the Ethan stream of Kishon, Nachal Kedumim. Huge out-of-season f- f- floods have been observed in our times. In Nachal a, Another kibbutznik, Yifra Khaviv, a member of Kibbutz Beit Keshet, north of Bantabur, described such a flood that happened unexpectedly after the end of the rainy season on the Independence Day, April 16, 1964. To cite his words, he wrote, it was like the flood in the days of Noah. Nachal Tavor became a raging river. Time is shortening. I have to make one more point. Our discussion has a dis- the surprising implication for understanding the geography of Gideon war with the Midianites, described in the following chapters of the Book of Shoftim. According to the scriptures, <clears throat> the Midianite camp was located in the Jezreel Valley, and this is where Gideon attacked them. But uh, now, look, slide. Look at this historical map. You see that Aharoni took the Midianites to the north, made a, a, a uh, some strange loop. He took them uh, to the north to give Atam away and then took them again to the south to Jezreel Valley. What what uh, what can be the the reason for such a uh, curious loop slide? Uh, you see, can you see here the uh, Verse from Sefateilim Assela Hen K Midian Kesisra kevin Benachal Kishon Nishmedub Endor Ayudomin La Adama. Who was who were perished in Endor? If as most uh, scholars believe, Nachal Kishon is in the West, then Nishmedub b'Endor must be the Midianites so so you have to to take you see endor near you see endor near the uh, stream of nahal tavor so if if you uh, you believe that uh, nahal kishon is in the west then uh, they must be perished uh, the Midianites. so you have to take them north from jezreel in Emek israel uh, a jezreel valley to endor and then to uh, take them again to Jezreel Valley, but if Nahal Kishon is indeed the eastern one near Endor, the pshat uh, is a uh, is the uh, going uh, in the plain uh, understanding of the pasuk, and uh, you, you we can return back to the pshat to the plain meaning of the Tanakh. Can you So may all your Enemies perish, Hashem. Thank you very
2: much.
1: Thank you so much, Professor Elitsor, for reminding us how much we still need to learn about uh, the Tanakh. Um, and I especially love, I find that as complex and deep and rich all of your explorations of biblical geography are, the answer ends up being the most simple thing, right? We often end up with the Pshuto, you know, mikra, and um, it, it was uh, fascinating to hear from the source. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, and once again, if you're interested um, and want to learn more, um, Professor Elie Soar's, uh truly amazing book is available on the Koran website, and we didn't mention earlier that um, you can get a great discount with the discount code MSTLIVE. Uh, thank you, and all right. And now we are going to hear from Rabbi Benny Lau. Uh, Rabbi Benny Lau heads the 929 Bible Project and is a research fellow at the Israel Democracy Institute. Oh, Rav Lau, welcome. (laughs) Um, He served for many years as the rabbi of the Ramban synagogue in Yerushalayim. Rav Lau is a master storyteller and is the author of the best-selling volume, Jeremiah, the Fate of a Prophet, also published in English by Maggi Press and other popular, extremely widely read volumes. This most recently translated book, Isaiah, Prophet of Righteousness and Justice, was written in partnership with Rav Yoel Ben-Nun, a legendary scholar and pioneer of Tanakh study in Israel and one of the founders of Yeshivat Haaretz Rav Ben-Nun and Rav Lau wrote the book after studying the book of Yeshigahu in depth together. They both write in the preface. The book you hold in your hand is the product of a dialogue between two very different people, an unlikely partnership. One of us is rooted in the world of exegesis, while the other is drawn to the world of literature. Nonetheless, the storyteller is fond of exegesis, while our exegete craves a good story. Isaiah, prophet of righteousness and justice, was sponsored by the Agus family of New York, and our gratitude goes to them. Thank you so much, Rav Lau, for joining us. Please tell us more about your wonderful book and about the prophet, Yeshayahu.
4: Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me here. I must tell you that uh, for me it's a bit strange situation because I don't know how many of you wrote books, but how many of you wrote books that you can't read? No uh, English, it's not it's not my language, and I wrote it, of course, with Rabbi Yehiel in Hebrew, and uh, I want to hope that the translation is uh, quite well. And I try, I will try to express myself about the book, but. First of all, I'm not sure if the Professor Yoel Elitsu is still here. I want to tell you all, all people here, that his father, Professor Yuda Elitsu, I, I didn't have the privilege to learn with him, but I think that I become his student by reading all, all his articles, all his books. He's one of the pioneers or, who made them different for us, the Israelis. By filling Tanakh, not just the book of reading, but filling its connection between the history, the political uh, situation, the 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 very present uh, question that raised in Israel, we found ourselves read these articles and argue in school, in class about the fact that every one of the prophets gave us to our own life. And later on, I became a student of Yoyal Binun. Yoyal Binun is an unbelievable uh, scholar who actually changed in Israel the whole system of learning Tanakh. Learning Tanakh in the, let's say, the old school is reading Pasuk and then read Rashi, Rambani, Ben Ezra, all the interpretations, all the perushim, regularly from what we used to say, Mikraot Gdolot. Later on, Rav Yoel Binun in the mid-70s started a new shita, a new system of learning Tanakh. And his Tanakh or his shita was read the chapter and try to put the text on the context. Make Tanakh alive. Don't read pasuk and then another pasuk and another. Then you used to say, from all the trees, You cannot see the forest. And try, first of all, to look large, to see the macro, the story. And then if you have trouble, if you have something not uh, not, uh, uh, understanding enough, then go to the Mephoshim. They will help you, surely. Surely. He didn't try to put himself higher than the Mephoshim, but different. He said, if we had the miracle situation, that Am Israel returned back to Eretz Israel and made the Safa, the language, return back to a live language. That that is the miracle of the Zionut movement. Mean we in Israel, we play, we talk, we do everything with a holy language, Leshon Kodesh. So he said, if we understand the language, let's talk with that, and it's it's changed the whole system of learning Tanakh in schools, in high school, in yeshivot, all around. And Rav Yoel Binun is, is one of the big, big pioneers of that. And for me, it's an unbelievable privilege to have Chavroto with him for many years. And uh, one of the products is th- that book, Isha'ayahu. I didn't know how we say Isaiah or Isaiah, but for for, for us, we understand the name Now I want to put it immediately and very clear. That when we wrote the book of Ishaya, we decided to make the text on the context about the first sentence of that book mean Shayau Asher Yotam Stop. Mean what? We we built a strong borders to limited our book to the time that Ishayahu ben Amot identified himself to live in. Uziya yotam, Achaz chiztiyah. the four kings in Judea include all, you can count about 50 years. We are talking about the uh, time of 8th century BCE, mean from 750 BCE until 700. That is the time between Uzziah and Hezekiah, the kings in Judea. That is exactly the time that the Assyrian Empire came to our area, to our land, and they become a, a player in the game, in the, in the huge game of the world. The Assyrian period started just then. If we are talking about four kings in Judea, we should talk about. Four kings in Assyrian. The Tiglat, Pil, Eser, Shalman, Eser, Sargon, and Sanchariv. I know that in English it's believed that it seems different, but that is the king that played in that game in Yishayahu Ben Amot's period. Mean what? Mean that we stop our book just in chapter 39. When the book adds With chapter forty, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, all the chapters that we well know from the haftarot in the summer after Tisha Be'av, seven Nachama haftarot, we didn't talk, we we didn't write anything about that. And you know, you know the question that many times raised in the world about Ishaya the first, Ishaya the second. We didn't went to that play. We just spoke about. Ishayahu according the history. According the history. Now, by saying that, I want to say that our book is just going follow the history. follow the history means the first chapter talking about Ishayahu in the period of Uzziah the king. Second chapter is about Ishayahu in Ahaz period. And third one, Ishayahu in the time of Chizkiah. Now, every chapter, each one of them is so different and dramatic situation. The first one, Uzziah was one of the huge, large, very rich king, similar, very similar to King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech. And you know, Shlomo, it's one of the biggest king that we ever had in Judea. And what's happened with Uzziah, if I count just one sentence from the book of Divrei Yamin said, uh, the Tanakh, the Bible said, He becomes so strong. He becomes so, so, so large. So, uh, uh, so aggressive king. And he thought that he can be king to every corner in, the, in the, his own empire. And he went to the forbidden area, to the kings, to the mikdash, to the temple. He put his leg, he put himself inside the temple and immediately become metzorah. That happened in the mid-8th century BCE, the, the time of Uzziah, the, the unbelievable great king. And when Ishayau the prophet, saw that, when he saw that the great, King become a tzora because he couldn't stop himself to be under the the, 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 the name of Hashem because he felt that his kind of of ego that grew up. Ishayahu said, okay, I finished with the expectations of the regular kings. and he became a, 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 a prophet that wrote many chapters, all the beginning of his book talking about expectation that Hashem will come to be in, in our eyes to be the king of the world. I will not go inside this Nevuot, but it's a very sad Nevuot that argue against the kingdom, against Uziyah. Beautiful words, I should say, Ishayahu is a poetry. Every every p- chapter in Ishaya book, it's like poem, and it's beautiful. So, of course, in Hebrew, you, it's playing with the words, it's, it's, it's creating, it's like a creating a new language in Hebrew, and it's beautiful. So that is the first chapter. Second chapter is a very tragedy and dramatic situation that the kingdom, the empire, Tiglat Pileser moved from, from northeast, moved to our area. And this king Ahaz, Ahaz, the grandchild of Uzziah, didn't know what he's supposed to do. Should he give? Should he give up? Should he fight against to do a coalition with the with the neighbors? The neighbors mean the Israelis in north and the Arameans in north. He didn't know. And what's happened then in that situation? I'm talking about seven hundred three, seven hundred thirty BCE. The Israelis and the Aramaic made a coalition against Judea, a war, a war between Israel and Judea. Two kingdoms, two states for two nations. Israel and Yehuda, brother, but a border between a border between Israel and Yehuda. And Israel fought against Yehuda. And they couldn't the y- y- Yerushalayim was very close. And would tried to help Ahaz and say, just keep, just keep. Don't do anything. Don't do anything. Don't give your, your keys to the Assyrian and don't be uh, afraid from the Israelis and Ramey. Ahaz was weak, too weak. And Ahaz couldn't listen to the voice of the prophet. And what he did, Ahaz, he gave the keys to the, to the uh, Assyrian. To Tiglath and Judea, stop! Be a Jewish place immediately. Immediately, the Assyrian came and changed the language, changed the culture, changed everything. We become we Yerushalayim and, and, and Judea. We became to be like a prevention of the of the Assyrian. That is the time of Ahaz. third chapter, when Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, became a king. He start, make the strong revolution against the Assyrian. And then with that, with that situation, Ishayahu tried to stop him. Don't go to that area. Don't fight against the empire. Hashem made them happen so. Don't try to be so strong. You are not, you are not empire. You a small city keep your city and don't try to fight against. Ishayahu many chapters, many chapters, he made himself in a position against the leaders, against the government, against the king. Very political prophet. Hezgiyahu didn't hear. It was like an argument between Hezgiyahu the king and Ishayahu the prophet. In the end, Sanchariv the king Came destroyed all Judea, thirty-six cities in all Judea destroyed. If you're going to the British Museum, you can read it in the walls in the Assyrian hall. You can see the whole whole journey that Sancharif the king did in 701 B.C.E. You can read the Bible. You can read it in the in the walls. It's similar. It's it's unbelievable, and in the end. In the end, all Judea are destroyed except Yerushalayim. chapter A. kesuka meluna Nothing except Yerushalayim. So we win or we lose? What happened there? It's unbelievable. We read that chapter, Perek Aleph in that it's the end of the whole story. We read it in Before Tisha B'Av, Chazon Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, trying to say what, what the message that Ishayahu after all gave to our kingdom, to our prime minister, to our Jewish state, Medinat Israel. What Ishayahu said to us? He said, It's two words that playing all over the book of Ishayahu. Tzedakah Umishpat Mean what? mean that if you want to build a society, you need to build it by two pillars. One is justice. Everything should be clear by justice. But uh, the other, uh, other very strong pillar is tzedakah. Tzedakah, it's not a charity. Tzedakah means you need to see the faces of the human being, of the whole citizen around you. You shouldn't close yourself because of justice. Justice many times cannot see faces. Just do the rules. That's the Kamishpat, it's, its combination. It's a very strong commu- community, or should say, very strong state that Ishaya would dream about. And we, we in Israel, trying to keep his words and to build our society, l'at l'at, slowly, slowly, by hearing the voice of the Prophet. Tadarabha.
1: Thank you so much, Emily Lau. I, um, that was beautiful. And I do, I really do think it gives the viewer a sense of the, uh, dynamic energy of the book. It's like a book you wouldn't think you couldn't put a book down about Yeshayahu, but it's that kind of book. It's riveting. Um, thank you so much. Uh, that was wonderful. And once again, available for sale now on corinpub.com, um, with the code MST live. And and now we're going to just take a few minutes to um, reflect on what we heard, um, maybe ask some questions uh, to our speakers. Um, Oh, and everyone is. (laughs) Uh, So I have a sort of interesting question, uh, and I wanted, I'm, I'm wondering if it could actually maybe really be asked to everyone who spoke this evening. Um, and that's in the spirit of um, Professor Price's book, uh, Tribal Blueprints, the idea that the personalities, the demuyotes of our avot, uh, the idea that they kind of continue in our current, you know, world that we live in, um, or throughout the enough until now. Um, and I was just, I would love to hear from all of the speakers, uh, maybe to reflect a little bit about uh, modern Israel and how, or modern Jewish world, let's say for um, those speaking in the diaspora, about how uh, some of the specific, per- so I'll, <laughs> so for Professor Price, I would ask, meaning how do some of these um, per- specific biblical personalities potentially kind of appear in the modern Jewish world? Um, for Rav Elitzor, I would ask, I don't know if this is a fair question, but are some of the, the Shvatim that we are, some of the, um, when we talk about the um, the tribal lands of Israel, meaning, is there something of the Ofi, is there something of the these dmuyot that you see even, today in the cities of certain, um, of certain uh, tribes, you know, of the area of Binyamin versus the area of Yehuda, is there's something that you, you see is still there in the geography in terms of the people, in terms of the, the communities that are in these, you know, ancient tribal areas. Is that a fair question? <laughs> <laughs> that would be my question for Rav Ali Tsur and then for uh, Rav Lau I would ask the dmood of Yishayahu who is the Yishayahu today? Is there um, um, and I think you kind of pointed us in this direction in terms of what meaning what Yishayahu is, would ask for today um, but maybe um, if we, we could hear more of your, your thoughts about that. Um, so Professor Price please.
2: <laughs> okay. Okay. Um... <laughs> I think I understand what you want me to answer, but I actually think that when you discover the personalities of each of the tribes, you discover that there are pieces of each of the tribes in in lots of different people, or there are some people who identify more with one tribe personality than others. Like Let's say, for example, when you read the chapter on Binyamin, and the personality of Binyamin is very much, resembles the youngest in a family who is babied by everyone, who everyone treats as a baby, even as they get older. So you have Binyamin who's like in his 30s, but he's still being called Hana'ar. He never speaks for himself. Yehuda stands up for him and he doesn't say a word. And that resembles many family types of dynamics where you have the youngest child who's babied by their older siblings, or you have the leader of the family that emerges even without doing anything. Everyone just looks to that leader. And that's of course Yehuda, but that's something that we see throughout every family. And I would say within every community, they're just the people that come to the top and people listen to by definition. So I would say that every, single person when you finish reading the book can actually either identify themselves to one tribe like Mm -hmm. I feel that I might resemble more of one tribe versus another or a mixture of lots of different different personalities from every tribe because the goal is to show there's not one good versus one bad Every. Mm Every part of them is good, but God shows all of them. And it's just the different personality traits coming through the different people that I can relate to or their life story that I can relate to. And, and therefore, look how they reacted in, in a certain situation and either learn to copy that or to not copy that based on what happens within their story. So I think hopefully it makes the tribes very relatable to each and every one of us in our lives and we can see ourselves through them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you can't just peg one type onto sort of one person, meaning, in a way, m- many of the different personalities of tribes can be found in the individual. Um, exactly. Thank you. Sure.
3: I, well, I, I have to speak about the Shvatim. <laughs> okay. But <I'll>, that's fair. I <laughs> <laughs> Uh, from Rabbi Yoel ben that uh, Rav Lau cited. He, he said once that even today you feel the atmosphere of the plishtim when you are wandering in Tel Aviv. And uh-huh. you feel something of uh, a, another type of, of life when you wander in Jerusalem. Uh, you have something that... Uh, Connects us with the with the past, uh, but uh, I I have a, a little custom when I, I uh, drive or go uh, some, somewhere when I I am uh, going from uh, the territory of one shevet uh, to another tribe, I say the psukim of the of the tribe in my mouth even. Uh, or, or think about it. When, uh, for example, I I I um, come into Yerushalayim from the north uh, near the uh Merkazit, there is a tunnel in which I am going from Benjamin to Judah. I feel it. I don't know if if everybody feel something like that. In in the last chapter of my. Uh, a book places in the parasha, <clears throat> I dealt with the tribe of Benjamin, and I said that uh, Benjamin the man and Benjamin the tribe had something very common. Benjamin uh, the man was born to Rachel and he is the in nature he is the brother of Yosef. But <clears throat> after that He was adopted by Yehuda. So uh, if you uh, look at the history of the tribe of Benjamin, it's the same. He began as a part of the tribes of Israel, but then he became a part of Yehuda after the uh, days of uh, Shlomo, Yerobam and uh, Rehobam. even the mikdash the the, the first mikdash of the of the patriarchs of the avot was in betel in the border between benjamin and Yosef. and the eternal uh, mikdash is in jerusalem on the border between benjamin and judah
1: Thank you. So in a way, all of these different personality archetypes are actually coming together right in the right in the uh, Eretz Yisrael that we live in.
3: Uh, all of you invited are invited.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Once everyone's allowed in the country, I, you know, <laughs> thank you so much. And hello Rev. Lau, thank
4: you. Yes, so what I supposed to say who is the prophet today? So thanks <laughs> God, there are no prophets. You know that the time of second temple days since then after the last uh, prophet Malachi, no prophets in Israel and the Gemara said Chacham adif minavi, we prefer then the 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 leadership of the sages than the prophets. And Rav Kook explained that, that the, the prophets saw the large picture and the very far view, but they didn't have the ability to lead the people in the very, very intimate and immediate uh, steps. It, they, they, that was the koach, the power of the prophets. The mm-hmm. power was to, to, to say something very far. And uh, if I'm talking today about not the real prophets, but uh, like uh, a poems, poetry is like a, a very special people, you know, I was very close to Amos Oz. Amos mm-hmm. Oz uh, 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 felt himself not like a prophet, he didn't think himself as a prophet, but he thought that he strongly have something to say to the leaders that in, 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 in a very different way, to stand and say and very hard things. And that is a koach of the spiritual leader. It's a spiritual leaders. I'm upset to say that I can't say that about the rabbis. The rabbis supposed to be strong like that, to stand and say very, very moral and, 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 and correct values against children against leaders, against... But but, you know, because many reasons, uh, the hand-by-hand, the rabbis and the, the, the politicians go together. But uh, I can mention few names, few names who very seriously took himself and said, I feel like, I feel like, and it's not a question of religious and non-religious. Many times it's come from the non-religious people. One of the big, big, big right uh, according to the politician writer writers in Israel, name was Uri Zvi Greenberg Atsag, mm-hmm. It was one of the unbelievable poetries uh, after the Holocaust, and he wrote actually before the Holocaust. He wrote to the Jewish in East Europe and say, "Just go, just go," and then he said, "I feel like Jose, like a prophet." He wrote that. He wrote that. Now, if I'm talking about the kings in that time, I can mention many, many, many things, many, many who think that they are the empires. And, you know, in states, we just just said goodbye to one of them. So I don't want to open that box.
1: very interesting. Thank you for your honest, um, uh, reply. And, you know, if we don't have Nevi'im, we do, we, but we do have Chachamim, we're grateful for, um, a book like this that can really, um, give us so much, um, perspective and also, um, a sense of what we're hoping for, um, for the future of the Jewish people, uh, today. Uh, thank you so much. And again, thank you to all of our wonderful speakers. Um, these talks were just small glimpses of the amazing insights that await you in these books. Uh, once again, check it out. Check them out on the Koran website, code MSTLIVE for 20% off. Um, and thank you again for joining us. Um, we hope all of our viewers can please join us next week for the next installment of Magid Studies in Tanakh Live. We will hear from Dr. Tova Ganzel on the book of Icheskel, Rabbi Michael Hatton on the book of Yehoshua, and Rabbi Yaakov Beasley on Nachum, Chabokuk, and Safania. We hope to see you all there. And once again, thank you for joining us.
0: Indeed, thank you to all of our guests there and to Sarah Riddin for hosting. There is a second MST Live event on January 31st, 2021. And don't forget, you can get 20% off the entire Magid Studies in Tanakh and Magid Tanakh Companion series from karenpub.com using promo code MST Live. Please make sure to follow us on social media at Corin Publishers, uh, and you can tune in to the second installment of MST Live on Facebook Live or on YouTube when Sarah will be joined by Dr. Tova Gansel, Rabbi Michael Hatton, and Rabbi Yaakov Beasley. We look forward to seeing you there. Goodbye.